Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Today, we are talking one of my favorite subjects, asymmetric returns on exercise with Sten Stray Gunderson. Instead of our typical sponsor ad here, let me give you a little bit of the backstory on how I came to know Be Strong. A very good friend of mine sent me a text message and said, hey, you need to check out this device. It is right up your alley. And I had been investigating blood flow restriction training for a very long time. You see a lot of people using it in the gym. They tie bandanas around their biceps and do all kinds of crazy things. And it's extremely effective. And there's a ton of science going back, well, decades on the training system. But I wanted a device that was safe and a team that was truly dedicated to the science. And so when this text message came, I reached out to Be Strong immediately and said, hey, I need to try this thing. And the results are absolutely phenomenal. On days where I don't have time to work out, I put the Be Strong training system on and in under 20 minutes, I get an effective workout and I am sweating. So if you want to try this out, head on over to bestrong.training, that's the letter B strong.training and use the code boomer and you'll get 10% off. Sten Stray Gunderson is my guest today. He is a researcher in the clinical exercise and physiology laboratory at the kinesiology department at the University of Texas at Austin. That first sentence is a mouthful. He's pursuing his PhD in exercise physiology with an emphasis on cardiovascular and cardiopulmonary physiology. Sten has authored several studies assessing the safety and feasibility of blood flow restriction technologies for both healthy and clinical populations. He works as an exercise physiologist and program advisor for the Austin-based Holistic Performance Center called Reach Outcomes, and he also serves as a scientific advisor and blood flow restriction training expert for Be Strong, Inc., There, he's worked with many top-level athletes, people that we get into on the show today, and teams ranging from the Olympic level to military personnel to youth to collegiate levels and certainly everything in between. This is an amazing conversation that I should probably just title Asymmetric Ways to Develop Anabolic Responses. Maybe that will be the episode title, maybe it won't. But we talk about the biochemistry of blood flow restriction training. We talk about why you may want to be concerned about occlusion and really that anabolic response and how to produce it using various different scenarios, both in minimum effective dose training, which you guys know I'm very, very interested in, and how to stack it with other workouts. The show notes for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Sten, that's S-T-E-N. And if you like this one, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating because, wow, it was a doozy. Let's get on to my conversation with Sten Stray Gunderson. 
Let's give another shout out to a listener, shall we? This subject is great info. I enjoyed listening to Dan discuss epigenetics and exploration into how it can be utilized for better health. That episode's going way, way back. But thank you so much for the five-star review. And I really appreciate you guys digging back into that episode catalog, if you will, and really listening to the beginning. Shows come a long way, but I remember those episodes very, very fondly. Let's move on with the conversation. Sten, welcome to the show. Hey, Boomer. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're going to jump into a lot today. And for sure. those watching this on YouTube, we actually have the same headset on. Uh, and we may, we may get into a little bit about that headset in a second. But, okay, blood flow restriction. And yeah. I've had the pleasure of uh, talking to somebody very close to you. Uh, about this recently, but what can't it do? Yeah, so that's a good question, Boomer, because a lot of people think of B- BFR, blood flow restriction, as this miracle tool to use in any capacity, uh, wherever you are, and it'll solve all your problems. What BFR really is, is a way to tap into the existing physiology that we have to adapt to stress. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, it, or the way it does that is actually in a way tricking the body into thinking that it's undergoing massive loads or massive stress uh, that then necessitates adaptation. So that adaptation can be increased muscle strength, increased muscle hypertrophy, uh, increased blood vessel development, something we call angiogenesis, increased bone formation, all of these things that are normally associated with training. Um, And really what BFR does is it taps into that and tries to augment any of those adaptations that we would normally see with heavy resistance training or high intensity training, such as running intervals and things like that. Mm -hmm. All right. Can we we delve a little bit into the mechanisms here just because, uh, you know, there are quite a few biochemistry nerds that listen to this, uh, myself included. And I would just love to understand a little bit more about why something so simple as restricting blood flow leads to such a massive adaptation. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I've learned just in studying BFR and cardiovascular physiology in general is just how important blood flow is. Mm-hmm. Blood flow is really, is so vital and it might be seem kind of um, mundane to say that, but it's really profound. Um, the way that we move, the way that we operate, the way that our cells actually turn over and actually perform their function is through blood flow, getting oxygen, getting the nutrients they need, um, and then getting rid of those toxins and waste after uh, energy is produced and those cells use up whatever nutrients were in the bloodstream. And so when we disrupt that blood flow, that normal flow going into and out of the muscle, into and out of the organs, um, we stimulate uh, a stress to the system. And that stress then leads to adaptation. Any adaptation that you gain from anything, whether it's studying, whether it's, um, you know, even drinking, you know, your body gets used to these things and tries to adapt to that environment. And so whenever we disrupt that blood flow, that's a major stress to the system in making it adapt. It adapts. Um, mm-hmm. So really what happens when we have the cuffs on is, and the reason why we use light, light weights when we use BFR is to really recruit the fibers, the muscle fibers responsible for aerobic metabolism, right? They, they need oxygen to, in order to produce ATP in order to initiate muscle contraction and cross-bridge cycling. When we do those light weights, normally we can pretty much do it all day. So think of even just an unweighted bicep curl. We can pretty mm-hmm. much do that all day. 
when we don't have sufficient blood flow going to that muscle, it gets further and further into trouble. And by trouble, I mean it's, it's using up that oxygen. It's not clearing out the waste products associated with creating ATP. And you end up having to recruit more and more high threshold motor units. Um, and those high threshold motor units are innervating your type 2A and type 2X fibers, which are kind of responsible for explosive power and, and sustained explosive power. Um, mm -hmm. And so as you start tiring and fatiguing your type 1 fibers, two things are happening. You're running out of oxygen, you're running out of blood, and you necessarily have to recruit those type 2 fibers. And those are, like I said, they're innervated by higher and higher threshold motor units. So that's coming from the brain. Um, so the effort in, in the intent in that exercise is also increased. And so we see hypertrophy of those muscle uh, fibers, as well as some CNS uh, developments in strength as well. Mm -hmm. now, and so uh, this process that, that leads to lower and lower oxygen levels, then again, su subsequently recruits those muscle fibers. And that's really what we're trying to get at when we lift heavy weights or we're running maximally. We're just immediately recruiting those muscle fibers. With BFR, we're kind of getting there gradually. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned CNS. So uh, mm -hmm. this, you and I were discussing before about my uh, past history of pounding my sympathetic nervous system. Yes. When I look at blood flow restriction training versus let's say, you know, some of the workouts that I used to do in sort of West side splits with sure. power lifting. Am I necessarily pounding it as much as I am with, let's say one to three rep max deadlifts or something like that? So that's a good question. Um, short answer is, is no. Um, so mm -hmm. this is a very different way to actually recruit those muscle fibers and stimulate even neurological adaptations. Mm -hmm. um, but we're not taxing the external load, the absolute load that you're subjecting your body to is so much lower that you're not, you're not stressing your CNS all that much, or I should say as much as a heavy, heavy weight, uh, lifting a heavy, heavy weight. Mm -hmm. Um, you're still taxing it somewhat. And, and if you use heart rate variability, we can actually see that your sympathetic nervous system is turned on. Um, you know, we can get a little bit more into the mechanism of, of some, um, nervous fibers that actually are stimulated by using BFR, but also when you're doing normal resistance training and these things lead to a heightened sympathetic response. Mm -hmm. The real okay. key with BFR, the real key with BFR is that although we're stimulating that CNS, that sympathetic response during the workout, the parasympathetic uh, post-workout is, is actually elevated. And so not necessarily during the workout is all that different. You're still, you know, having heightened sympathetic response, but it's really that the fact that you didn't actually subject your body to high external loads that you can recover so much quickly, so much more mm -hmm. quickly. So you mentioned a couple of adaptations that happen. Mm -hmm. Neurological adaptation at, I'm sure a few people perked up when they said that. Does BFR make me smarter? Or is that just, or like, does it help muscles communicate better in that sense? Uh, does it make it smart, make you smarter? I think that's still, it's still uh, kind of, uh, maybe that's something that yet. be found in the yeah. lab. TV, TV, uh, D. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, uh, it certainly helps develop neuromuscular strength. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the way we kind of think about that in the exercise physiology world is, um, you know, really this, this goes out to all the guys who want to, you know, look good for the beach. If they don't start training, you know, a month, a month and a half before they want to look good and, and lean out and, um, build some hypertrophy and build some muscle, uh, they're kind of doing themselves a disservice. Really, any, any gains in strength uh, that happen within the first month of training are really neuromuscular. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so essentially you have more myelination on your motor neurons. Mm-hmm. Um, those, those signals are being sent uh, more efficiently. And also the, the same amount of stimulus at the neuromuscular junction uh, elicits a higher uh, force of contraction. So mm-hmm. that, that's kind of the initial training and adaptations that occur. And then you can get hypertrophy after, you know, six weeks and beyond of, of training. Okay. Uh, I'm going to table the six weeks and beyond of training for a second, because I want to drill down a little bit more on the nervous system point. Sure. Um, how does that work? Because Mm -hmm. you mentioned that, yes, I am taxing my sympathetic nervous system, but is there an asymmetric response with the parasympathetic nervous system afterwards when you uncuff yourself or if you don't mind going into that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, and this is still a little bit up to discussion. Um, You know, there aren't too many papers out there looking at specifically parasympathetic and sympathetic responses. So I want to be careful here and and just, and let people know that this is purely speculation. Okay. Um, So the way that I've, I've kind of tried to think about it is because you have the external loads being low, your parasympathetic response after the workout is just, is going to occur faster than it otherwise would when you're subjecting your body to actual muscle damage and, and, um, high load stress on your joints. So it's, it's, it's your body kind of picks it up as two very different things, um, and allows your body to recover faster to get you into parasympathetic state. Um, Mm -hmm. but so something to kind of like tease apart here is we have our sympathetic responses and, you know, you have afferent neurons going up to the, uh, medulla and then, uh, being processed there through afferent neurons, you then have, um, a sympathetic output. And that includes increased heart rate, increased, increased sweating, um, increased blood pressure, the list goes on. What happens when we have a blood flow restriction bands on is as we're doing that, we're stimulating that sympathetic response, but it's more so to do with the restriction of blood flow rather than the actual external loads. And so as soon as we remove that blood flow restriction, all of a sudden your body is working very, very well and you can recover that much faster. I hope, I hope mm-hmm. I answered that question adequately. Yeah, um, can go absolutely. Well, look, I, I put you on the hot seat there because no, that's, that's okay. a, it's something that I've, I've kind of wondered because uh, we're going to get to frequency of training later, sure. uh, but there's my traditional thinking around training, especially in the powerlifting world is that you need a little bit more of a break than you may need for mm-hmm. uh, blood flow restriction. Right. Uh, Before but, we go on, I want to, I want to kind of tease apart two things too. So neuromuscular development and motor neuron recruitment and myelination of those motor, motor neurons is completely separate from the sympathetic response. Okay. So you, so you have motor neurons, somatic motor neurons going to your muscles and they're innervating mm-hmm. those and, and causing the muscle contraction. But you also, you also have your autonomic nervous system and mm-hmm. that gets split into your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. And mm-hmm. so they're, they're kind of two separate things. They, they play with each other a little bit, but they're very distinct um, pathways. Awesome. Uh, Before we get into uh, just a lot of things that you've done with athletes, et cetera, the other use cases of this, because uh, blood flow Mm -hmm. restriction training to me, uh, I've seen bodybuilders use it. I've seen a lot of people and maybe not necessarily in the right ways, you know, tying whatever cloth around their biceps. Yeah. Uh, But other use cases aside from just getting swole, what are some of the things that you've seen in your experience in terms of using this, maybe in a physical therapy sense? Yeah. So the way I like to think about BFR is it's an augmentation of whatever training you're normally doing. So what happens with a given workout 
is we either maximally or we submaximally stimulate um, a series of hormones that are released in response to the magnitude of stress that that workout induced. So on some days when we have an interval day or, or a one rep max day where we're building up to a run at max, uh, it's a maximal day. You're probably not going to get a lot more augmentation of that adaptation at adaptive response with the use of BFR. Mm-hmm. However, on the days where you're not, you have a more moderate intensity day or even an easy day, you can use BFR to maximally stimulate that anabolic response from those exercises. Mm-hmm. And so, and what we can get in a little bit, uh, into how that actually works, why you can up the frequency of your given workouts, um, a little bit later, but that's kind of the gist is, um, we normally have this ceiling of, of our anabolic response to a given workout. And BFR is kind of a way to make sure that we're, we're closing in that gap and we kind of reaching that asymptote on, Mm -hmm. on, on that, uh, curve. Mm -hmm. Um, and it does this by tricking the body into thinking that it's a maximal stress and our response is to maximally adapt. Um, so that's kind of the gist of, of why, um, we're seeing it can work for hypertrophy, but also if your focus is physical therapy, um, aiding in that healing response. So doing, doing a fatiguing set of exercises, which you really normally can't do if you're, if you're really all that injured, um, helps the body adapt. Exercise Mm -hmm. in general is anti-aging. It's, 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 it's a robust healing adaptation uh, or causes robust healing adaptations, um, it builds better blood vessels, which again, coming back to the idea of blood flow being so vital, more blood, f- blood vessels equals more higher rates of healing and higher rates of fitness. Mm-hmm. And, and let's talk about growth hormone because sure. yeah. growth hormone to me, uh, and I think there's been studies on this, is mm-hmm. sort of like looking at it from an epigenetic age perspective and sort of reversing that epigenetic age. Sure. With BFR, I can, in theory, induce significant amounts of growth hormone. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, so just to back up here, because I, I I think it can confuse people. BFR doesn't elicit a higher amount of growth hormone than you would normally produce with a maximal exercise session. So if I don't produce growth hormone, a high level of growth hormone, normally it's not like you're adding, let's say SARMs or something to the equation. It's not a, it's not like a replacement for or it's not a, an addition to your normal growth hormone. Yeah. yeah. The, the way that we kind of talk about it is a endogenous production of growth yeah. hormone versus exogenous production, mm-hmm. right? Or, or exogenous <laughs> that, uh, yeah, injection, that, that, right? That's probably yeah. what I could say, right? Like that's well, no, probably. That, what I, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's kind of how we break it, break it uh-huh. down. And yeah. so you only have so much endogenous growth hormone that you can actually release. Yep. However, especially for people who, like you said, who are maybe getting older and have less endogenous production of growth hormone, um, the other side of that coin is that a lot of times they're not able to get to an intensity that would elicit a maximal endo- endogenous uh, release of growth hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a good way, an easy way, or I shouldn't say easy. It's still pretty tough when you have the bands it's on. It's pretty damn difficult. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a faster way, a slightly more effective way for that population, let's say, mm-hmm. to elicit a maximal growth hormone release. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about other use cases like sarcopenia, which mm-hmm. is a huge problem in the elderly huge. and yep. then osteopenia, osteoporosis, these all seem very, very logical. It contributes to bone density as well, right? Yes. Uh, and, and there's the, the verdict is still kind of out on that, um, whether it increases bone density, but in a few of our case studies that we've looked at, we have seen increases in in bone density. And actually, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, this was in a woman who was osteoporotic. Um, okay. So she was actually able to 
increase her bone density during uh, an, an aggressive, I think it was two, two day BFR session over, over three weeks, um, mm-hmm. which is almost unheard of um, with someone who's osteoporotic. You mentioned sarcopenia. Um, so that's a huge uh, problem for our, our population right now, uh, particularly the baby booming population, which is the majority of our population. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually in Japan, where this kind of originally developed, they use that as a standard practice for, in, for dealing with symptoms of sarcopenia, dealing with symptoms of, of osteopenia um, and osteoporosis as well. Um, so really, it's, I think, in, in my opinion, it's just a matter of time before uh, American clinicians really are able to see this and ex- are exposed to this enough to see the true benefits of it and really start implementing it for their patients. Mm-hmm. So we were on one spe- end of the spectrum with the sure. physical therapy side of things. Now you've had some experience with some pretty damn high level athletes. Mm-hmm. How does a high level athlete use this and how does it contribute to their training? Yeah. So when we talk about high level athletes in general, um, it's totally variable. So everybody has their, their specific exercises they like, um, level of training that they like. Uh, and so it's, it's going to be, there's no kind of one-stop shop answer for, for that. Um, what I've typically seen is once, especially once someone is kind of established at, at the elite level, um, say they're in their thirties, um, they're, they're kind of, they're just maintaining, they've, they've kind of done the hard work the past 30 years and are just looking to maintain their level, um, and, and do that in an efficient way. And so a lot of the times they'll, they'll use this as a complete replacement for their normal strength training. Um, mm-hmm. And part of the reason they like that is, you know, as they're getting a little bit older, they tend to get a little bit more sore from heavy lifting. They, um, they just feel the, they don't feel the need to do that type of lifting anymore because they feel just as strong using BFR. Um, I've also seen if we kind of looking a little bit more on the younger side and elite athletes uh, using it in conjunction to their strength training sessions, but also mm-hmm. uh, for example, some, some Olympic downhill skiers have been using it while they're on the slopes. Um, for very That's, brief, like, is that just one run or because that to me seems you're, you're on the slopes and these guys aren't exactly on the greens, right? Like they're, no. <laughs> they're, they're taking <laughs> they're something that's a little th- pretty steep in a squat. That seems extremely fatiguing. So, so is. is this their entire it, training session or is it just like you get on your run on clip and then go back up? Yeah. So, so it totally depends. Um, mm-hmm. a little bit, it's a little bit variable, um, some days, so, so what will happen is some days, uh, those, those skiers will do a normal interval session, maybe cut that in half and then mm-hmm. do two or three sessions with the bands on. So they've mm-hmm. kind of stimulated that initial adaptation that they want. And they're trying to augment it with a little bit of extra BFR in that very sport specific manner. Mm-hmm. Um, alternatively, if someone's coming back from injury, they may start, they may start on a less steep or less intense, uh, you know, groomer run. Uh, and be able to use the bands and really get the same, a very similar feeling of fatigue that they get when they're on that ice sheet going at a, you know, 45 degree angle down the slope. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, it's a safe way to kind of gradually get back in while maintaining the relative intensity of that exercise. Okay. Okay. So, all right. Uh, Let's go back to some of the, some of these Olympic style athletes are that high Mm -hmm. of a level when they're combining this in their workout, is it pre or post, or is that completely athlete dependent? And I guess maybe go through a use case on when you, you just kind of mentioned pre why you would do it, but post, why would you do something like this? Yeah. So it's a good question. And just like all exercise in general, it's, it's very athlete dependent. 
Yeah. Um, we have our principles of, of training and we have our principles of, you know, the rates of adaptation and that, in that time course, micro, measles, macro cycles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, it, it is going to be athlete dependent. However, I have seen a lot of success with athletes using this as a warm-up routine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, a little bit, this hasn't really been looked at in the literature at quite as much, but what we have noticed is um, just a little bit more proprioception after you do a warm-up routine with the bands, mm-hmm. um, there's something about getting blood flow into areas that take a little bit more time to actually get perfused with that blood. Um, I think part of it has to do with reaching an optimal muscle temperature. Uh, a muscle will contract optimally when it's, when it's heated up. Literally, mm-hmm. warming up is, is, is a thing in the exercise physiology world. And doing that with BFR gets you there a little bit quicker. When you have blood flow going to an area, it's the best way to heat up a muscle. And so it kind of that that resistance or that restriction forces blood into areas where it would otherwise take more time to actually um, get into. Um, and part of that reason is is a uh, a balance between your vasodilating and vasoconstricting capacity in the muscle um, and its ability to kind of um, uh, dilate and actually get blood flow into into muscle fibers themselves. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of the pre. Uh, a good way to talk about the post is, again, coming back to that idea of kind of reaching your anaerobic uh, or, or your anabolic ceiling, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if again, if you were to use this after a day of moderate intensity exercise, um, you kind of maintain, you know, the actual cost of that of that exercise is, you know, is slightly catabolic um, versus one that's very intense where you're going more catabolic. You have to dip down further into your stores to then build up. Mm-hmm. What BFR does is on those small days, you have a smaller, smaller catabolic response, but then you have just as much of an anabolic response. Okay. So over time, chronically, that can lead to augmentations in uh, performance and, and muscle definition and, um, and composition as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on what you said, does that mean like, let's say I'm <clears throat> training yeah. for a bodybuilding competition, which I'm not, but it, sure. let's say you are would it be better than to have it post just to basically maximize your anabolic response in every workout? Yes. I, I particularly for bodybuilders where the goal is to build as much muscle um, as fast as possible. I think that's probably the best way to do it. Go mm-hmm. through your normal workout um, with the idea of inducing hypertrophy, getting a nice pump from that workout. Um, and then, and then really t- polishing it off. We call it topping it off with a BFR mm-hmm. workout where you're going to get even more of a pump. You're going to get more cell swelling. You're going to, you're going to stimulate mTOR and, and muscle protein synthesis even more so, um, than you otherwise would. Um, mm-hmm. again, you know, talk about diminishing returns when you get to the upper echelons of, of that maximal ceiling of an anabolic response, how much more it's going to give you. That's, that's really the question. Um, that's, that's kind of what each athlete and each trainer needs to ask themselves. Um, so if you're already kind of doing that, you know, maybe that it's BFR can provide that extra one or 2%, which ends up being the deciding difference between high level athletes and high level bodybuilders, I should say. Yeah. Mr. Olympia in second place, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, although I'm not saying that that's going to be the key difference, it's one of the many aggregate gains that you can, um, that you can add to your training to to help get you there. Mm -hmm. You mentioned mTOR. And that's a fairly trendy work path sure. yeah. <laughs> in the longevity world. Is there any concern with this that when you're looking at older populations, um, mm-hmm. I guess uh, on the one hand, you're balancing this delicate, you're, you're on this delicate balancing act between uh, avoiding sarcopenia and mm-hmm. overactivating mTOR. 
is it a concern that you could overactivate mTOR if you do this too much? So, and I, I see where you're going with that because yeah. overactivating mTOR can lead to cancer, right? Yeah. Uh, cancerous cells. So the thing with exercise that's really interesting, it's, it's a major regulatory um, stimulus for the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so thinking about mTOR that way, it, it's, it's a little bit different. Um, okay. With exercise, and again, I'm sp- a little bit speaking off the cuff here, um, cancer is not my expertise. So mm-hmm. I, I, I want to kind of iterate that before I go on. Um, but having said that, normally we think of um, oxidative stress, uh, you know, superoxides, also stimulating mTOR. Uh, mm-hmm. Because basically mTOR is a response to, uh, to stress, and, and one of those stresses is oxidative. Um, so that can come from food. It can come from environmental factors. Exercise is a very acute um, flood of basically oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. But in, in, um, certain, within, within certain limits, right? So mm-hmm. you wouldn't be – it's bad for you to be exercising 24 hours a day. It would not be good for your, any part of your system. But really short bouts of exercise can be really positive for um, adapting the body. And so mTOR with regards to cancer is a little bit different of a mechanism than uh, mTOR being activated by exercise per se. Okay. So that was kind of a long-winded answer to answer your question. But I think it's it, it was very helpful because it, it was just yeah. like something that came top of mind. I'm like, whoa, mTOR. Okay. Yeah. And so really, so M- mTOR can lead to cell proliferation. Proliferation, um, but exercise itself is a great regulator of of all cells, and so okay. so you can have that cell proliferation rather, um, but you can also have exercise inducing apoptosis, which is essentially trying to uh, get rid of damaged or uncontrolled cell growth. Mm-hmm. Um, what about it allows you? And I guess maybe I should clarify this before I go ahead and make the statement. But can you train with this seven days a week, or do I need to take a break? So I would say it depends. Um, for you, someone who trains pretty regularly, uh, you can get away with training seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and theoretically, there's nothing stopping anybody from training that, that frequently. Um, again, getting back to the idea of a minimal effective dose, do I think it's required to train seven days a week? Yeah. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but the nice thing is, is, is you can. Uh, so, and those days might look different. It might, you might have a little bit more intense session three days out of that, out of that seven. Um, and a little bit lighter sessions on four of those seven days. Uh, but yes, you can do this every day. There won't be any negative consequences associated with it. Mm-hmm. I will say when starting out, it's kind of a better idea to, to limit it to three to four times a week. Um, your body kind of, it's a big stimulus. It's a big stress. So um, it, it, it's better anytime you're introducing any new training system or, or methodology, you just want to gradually go into it. You don't want to jump in um, head first. Uh, mm-hmm. So so that's kind of the caution I would, I would kind of give out. But yes, uh, because we're not inducing a whole lot of muscle damage, we can up the frequency of training by a lot. Mm-hmm. Do you have, in that elite athlete level, do you have people that yeah. use this every single day of the week or do that actually work out every single day of the week? Or Because recovery is so important to this. So important. Sometimes yeah. recovery equals the stimulus, right? And right. so- when you have an elite level athlete, are they using this once, twice a day, seven days a week, or is yeah. it just more looking at like how much is this person sleeping? Uh, so again, with anything else, it's going to be a little bit dependent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but those elite level athletes, depending on their training phase, uh, whatever phase they're in um, of the year, they can use this seven days a week, one to two times per day. 
Um, and actually just as a way for me to stay in shape and stay healthy, I use this every day as well. And yeah. I have, I've used this every day for the past probably two and a half years, mm-hmm. um, probably more like two years. Um, and again, so not every day looks the same. It's not like I'm maximally exerting myself every time I put the bands on, but even a little bit of, of stimulation of growth hormone and that, that kind of thing will help just me feel better throughout the week. Um, the other thing that people tend to notice when they start using BFR is they sleep a lot better. And so for people who have trouble sleeping, this, even just doing a light intensity workout with BFR can help them fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And part of that has to do with growth hormone. Part of that has to do with just the regulatory element of exercise itself, um, stimulating energy and, and kind of having that kind of up and down effect of, of the, of the nervous system as well. Fascinating. If, if there hasn't been any study on that, I would love to participate in it because that would be a fantastic thing to run. Um, we, we, yeah, exactly. I, I think there needs to be way more research on how this affects sleep because mm-hmm. especially for athletes, um, what we've noticed, uh, you know, and for us, it's kind of interesting that the scientific world, a lot of the time, the researchers already know whether or not something works and it's just a matter of, of creating a, a study in order to actually get at that answer, um, and, and see if it actually does work on paper. Yeah. I've had a few strength training coaches on the podcast before, and they always, like to comment that science catches up with strength training. I'm not sure if that's actually true, uh, but it's kind of, who knows, right? Um, Well, so that's actually a good conversation to have just briefly because, um, you know, that, that is somewhat true. Uh, a lot of strength coaches, a lot of just coaches in general, right. Whether it's running, um, triathlons, things like that will implement things that they know work and have Mm -hmm. worked over the course of, of, of their careers and history. And what ends up happening is we as researchers then take that and say, okay, this seems to work for them. Let's see if it works in the lab in a very controlled setting. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Um, the other thing to consider is for something to significantly be affected, it has to have a substantial increase. And for athletes, 1% to 2% increases are substantial, uh, but they may not be statistically significant when we're looking at it in a lab. Um, and so sports tend to be kind of on the cutting edge of whatever methodology is being put out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be 15 years ahead of the, of the research of the science. Um, textbooks are usually about a decade behind where the, <laughs> where the, where the research is. And so if you're ever reading a textbook, they're great. And, and you should realize that there was a lot of work that went into all that text. Um, but at the same time, they're going to be, they're great for kind of getting a foundational understanding of the physiology or of that science, but they're mm-hmm. not on the cut on the fr- forefront of that research. Then we have, then we have uh, 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 meta-analyses, which are anywhere from six to eight years behind the current research. And then we have the current literature, uh, recently published studies, which are anywhere from two to three years behind where the cutting edge is. Then you get to the conferences, and that's when ideas are shared. So like uh, uh, ACSM every year, uh, you mm-hmm. get to meet with other researchers, and you get to talk about what they're doing in their lab, and it can help inspire and kind of gear people on or off course. Um, and then you have kind of the sports world right there, which is on the cutting edge and looking at this in real time. Mm-hmm. And that's just because people are really pushing the bounds and willing to do almost everything in order to take it to that next level. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, performance is, is the goal and, mm-hmm. and winning is the goal. So when you have that huge incentive, people are going to be looking The other side of minimum effective dose training is maximal recovery. And so how do I ensure maximal recovery? 
Well, for me, a lot of that comes through photobiomodulation. There are numerous devices that I have in my little homegrown lab here, but my go-to for now over a year has been V-Lite's NeuroAlpha. It helps me sleep, it helps me meditate better, and it helps me relax, which if you know me, that is something that I've come a long way on. If you want to try yours, head on over to vlight.com, that's V-I-E-L-I-G-H-T.com, and use the code BOOMER on any one of their devices, and they will give you 10% off. Let's get back to my conversation with Sten Stray Thunderson. Mm-hmm. The idea of low weight high reps is something that, uh, you know, candidly, I've struggled with, and okay. you know, uh, it, it just sort of seems counterintuitive to me. Yeah, let's start with uh, the idea of can I use blood flow restriction training in uh, kind of max max out workouts? Like, could you, in theory, do that? And maybe as a corollary to that question, why is high reps low weights better? Sure. Um, so it depends on what the goal is for that training. What we, what we define as an effective training session, because on one day it could be, I just want to feel a little bit better. I want to feel like poppy and springy and ready to explode on other days. It's like, I just want to be crushed by this workout. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that kind of plays a part, but put simply when we do low weight and high reps, we're getting at gradually recruiting those muscle fibers. Like I kind of talked about at the very beginning of this. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're really using our light intensity or our type one fibers to do the anaer- aerobic work rather, and then more aerobic work as we go down the line of muscle fibers. Mm-hmm. The reason why we want to use light weights with BFR is we're able to actually induce that. If we were to do light weights without BFR, it would take so many more reps to get the adaptations that we're looking for that it just, it's impractical. And mm-hmm. it's much easier to lift up something heavy, immediately recruit all of your muscle fibers and put it back down, right? Um, the reason why we wouldn't necessarily want to do it with the bands is it kind of gets away from the, the benefit of using the bands. Mm-hmm. So whenever we have a high intensity or heavy load day, you tend to be pretty sore from that. And the reason why you're sore is the actual muscle fiber damage. So, you, you know, you have these micro tears, you have some leakage of potassium and calcium, which cre- and another oxide that create an inflammatory response. And really it's that inflammatory response, not lactic acid that causes muscle soreness. Right. Mm-hmm. And with BFR, especially when you start getting used to it, you don't have that muscle damage because we're using light weights. And mm-hmm. so it just allows you to increase the frequency of training because you're, you're not causing that damage. And so coming back to that kind of that chart where we have this catabolic cost to the training and then an anabolic response, we are now just dipping in slightly and still maintaining that anabolic response. So that's, that's kind of the emphasis of why we wouldn't want to lift heavy with the bands. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that be strong is probably one of the very few bands that you can lift heavy with, um, okay. because we're not, uh, occluding arterial flow inflow to the muscle. Let's, let's talk about occluding. Cause I think this okay. is a point where we haven't delved too much into it because it is yeah. a, a danger. Do you mind yeah. explaining what that exactly means and what can happen if you actually do occlude? Uh, sure. Flow. Yeah. So essentially what, what we mean by, uh, by occlusion training is um, you have two, two sources of, or two forms of blood 
earth, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, it's all it's all the same blood, but it's going through two different, uh, we'll say, two. <laughs> Maybe in some people, it's not the same blood. but <laughs> <laughs> Right, so you have your venous blood flow and you yeah. have your arterial blood flow, right? Mm-hmm. Your oxygenated is the arterial, your deoxygenated, desaturated is your venous. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have the arterial flow coming from the heart going into the muscle itself. You have the venous flow coming out of the capillaries that are, that are in the muscle itself. And they're, they're, they actually have these one-way valves that we can talk about in a sec. And they're going to take the, that desaturated blood and that has toxins in it as well from, from the muscle contraction. And they're going to take it back to the heart, um, going through the lungs, and then back out through the arteries. When we talk about blood flow restriction, at least as it was described originally in Japan, and what B-Strong uses is venous occlusion. Yeah. So we're restricting the, the blood flow out. And that's causing a disruption of the blood of the normal blood flow circulation in general. Mm-hmm. When we place an occlusion pressure on the arterial side, and let me back up a little bit. The reason why we're able to do that and not affect the arterial side is because the arteries have a thick uh, layer of smooth muscle that kind of protects them, causes vasoconstriction, causes vasodilation in order to kind of control blood pressure. That's the mm-hmm. main way that we are able to control blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And, and veins have a little bit of that, but it's much, much less. You can look on yourself, you can co- collapse your superficial veins very easily. Mm-hmm. And so with a relatively low pressure, we just occlude the venous side of things while maintaining arterial flow. So blood pressure cuffs, rigid systems, it's harder to do that. And so you end up uh, the way that it's kind of been used in practice is they go up to an arterial occlusion pressure and then they back off from there anywhere from 40% of that occlusion pressure to 90% of that occlusion pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is fine and safe and effective as long as you're being supervised and your kind of your blood pressure is being monitored and you're in a clinical setting. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes an issue and perhaps dangerous when you're not in that clinical setting or not being supervised and you're on your own doing your own workouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, you know, I, I don't want to just dissuade people from using those because I think they're very, uh, they can be very effective and especially for younger populations, like completely safe. Mm-hmm. Um, however, for older populations and especially people who aren't used to, who don't really understand, uh, cardiovascular physiology or, uh, people who are just kind of trying to use this as a way to just increase their fitness. Um, I would proceed to those with, with a little bit of caution. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is, and we, you know, we, we can kind of um, stipulate on this, but uh, it's not really well charted out. Really what's happening when you restrict your, your um, arterial side is you're now messing with the flow into the muscle mm-hmm. and you can make that muscle ischemic. So mm-hmm. there's no more blood going in that muscle. And while you're contracting on an ischemic muscle, that can cause really, really bad damage. And mm-hmm. So something that can happen with that is something called rhabdomyolysis, which Ooh, is essentially, I'm familiar yeah, with that. <laughs> you, you are, you, have you had it? Uh, minor, minor forms, not okay. to the point where I had okay. to go to the hospital or anything. But. Right. So, so that, that can happen with when you are clu- occlude the arterial side, because you're mm-hmm. literally making that muscle ischemic, low, low blood flow and low oxygen, and you're getting in trouble and you can start creating even more damage. Mm-hmm. Something that also happens. So. Think, you know, think about when a heart attack occurs. Yeah. Yes, the ischemia that you're creating in the cardiac tissue, in the, my, in the myocyte, or uh, cardiomyocyte rather, um, that ischemia is not necessarily what does the most damage to the heart when you have a heart attack. It's actually the reperfusion of blood flow as you release, as they clear out that blockage. You all, you, all of a sudden you get this rush of superoxides and oxidative stress that causes inflammation and damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that can happen when you occlude your, 
arteries when doing blood flow restriction is actually that reperfusion. Now, because that muscle was super ischemic, it's created all these ox super oxides within that. And then you get a rush of even more oxides into that area. And that's when you create a, a, a kind of a positive feedback loop of, of damage to that vessel or that vessel and the muscle. Mm -hmm. And so we try to avoid that by using a system that purely tries to attack or kind of limit the venous outflow. Mm -hmm. And before we move on, one thing I want to kind of clarify is the reason why we're able to occlude the venous side and not the arterial side is through something called these, these one-way valves in, in the veins themselves. Mm -hmm. And so as we have this thing called the skeletal muscle pump, so as, as we're sitting there not doing anything, blood flow is, is not getting past that venous blockade, not getting past the dam. That's affecting how much blood is coming in from the arterial side, by the way. Mm -hmm. So once you hit a kind of a, a threshold where those, those two pressures are equal, you'll start having some venous flow going, going across that band. But you're also slowing down the arterial flow without actually contracting the vessel itself. Mm -hmm. so you are still getting a little bit of arterial restriction, but it's because the dam is being backed up, not because you're compressing that, that artery itself. Um, and so each time you actually contract, your muscles contract and force blood you know, all of a sudden your, your pressure here is increased mm -hmm. and all that blood has to go is one way because of these one way valves and that forces the blood past the blockade. So mm -hmm. if you're, if you're at home and you're thinking about this, um, you may, you may experience that you your, your blood pressure feels better in your arms when you're actually doing the exercise rather than just sitting there. Sometimes mm -hmm. when you're just sitting there, you're like, Oh my God, my arms are about to explode. And then you start doing the exercises and that feeling goes away. What's happening is your muscles are actually forcing that blood past the band. Um, mm -hmm. intermittently. So you're still getting a restriction of blood flow, but you're able to get that out intermittently um, and, and, and in a safe way. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Aside from giving everybody else a moment to digest that, like I, I need to digest that a little bit. Yeah. Um, let's, let's take it over into like the practical side of things, because we have a lot of people here, not practical, that's the wrong word, but like the, um, how we would use this in everyday life. And we have a lot of people here uh, using this or they just don't have that much time, right? Yeah. Um, as I've mentioned to you before, kind of two populations. You have the actual people who are trying to be superhuman and then the people who are like, okay, right. what is the minimum effective dose? Uh, yeah. What does a workout look like for this, uh, for people who are in that minimum effective dose camp? Because you and I both, uh, we were chatting earlier about time constraint, right? And yeah. how sometimes like, hey, you may only have 20 minutes in a day or less. What does a workout look like with Be Strong? Yeah. So the way, the way I think about it, the, my non-negotiable for the day, right? My non-negotiable workout, if I'm super busy, you always have five minutes, right? Yep. And so what I, what I typically do is a little circuit. Um, I'll put on all four bands. Um, I'll do, I'll do uh, max number of pull-ups, max number of push-ups, max number of air squats. Then I'll mm -hmm. do that. I'll, I'll cycle through that three times in about five to seven minutes. I am completely toast, um, but have gotten my workout in for the day. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how I use it. It's almost like a Tabata type um, session where it's yeah. really high intensity, but it's only body weight. So your actual loads are, are still pretty low. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that way you're, you're able to, uh, to boost a huge amount of growth hormone you're able to get that anabolic response in a really short period of time. Um, I don't want to fool anybody out there. It is a, still a very hard workout in that seven minutes, yeah. but you're, you're, and, and the other thing you're doing when you do that is you're stimulating a massive epoch. 
So mm-hmm. something we uh, excess uh, post exercise um, oxygen consumption, okay. right? So to replenish that huge oxygen debt that you've just created in your muscles, you then burn more calories after the workout's done. So just while you're sitting here working, you're actually burning, your resting metabolic rate is higher and you're burning more calories just sitting there to replace all of the energy that you just mm-hmm. used up. And how um, so that long, is that, that, how long is that window of epoch afterwards? Uh, so this is, this is something again, we, we need to look more into, mm-hmm. um, but you know, after a given exercise session, it, it can last up to 24 hours. Um, okay. wow. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that's what's happened happens every time. Um, but you do, uh, you know, and especially, you know, we have acute responses to this and we have chronic responses to this. Mm-hmm. And so if you're using this every day, you're kind of all, always stimulating that response, getting that out there, um, and, and getting the maximal adaptation that you can, um, versus an acute response, which, you know, can last from five hours to 24 hours, depending on the intensity of the training. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I did cut you off there in terms of just talking. That, a little that's bit. okay. Okay. No, I, yeah, we're good. Um, uh, so when we're talking minimum effective dose, okay, that, that was five to seven minutes, right? right. Uh, but if somebody were to take this and run this pretty much every day and say, this is yep. my exercise, um, what kind of training splits would you look like, you know, look at for somebody who's more of an executive role? Is it mm-hmm. upper lower? Is it full body every seven, all seven days? How would, how would you want to split that up? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So the way, the way I would, I would say it is um, start out gradually. So if you're just getting this equipment, um, maybe stay three days a week, start titrating in one more day, one more session a day, um, kind of over the course of two to three weeks. Once you've gotten pretty used to this stuff, that's when I would put on all four bands. So, so again, uh, maximal efficiency uh, of, of use of time um, to evoke the most maximal adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, Put on all four bands. The more muscle mass that you're actually or is actually restricted is likely going to yield a higher um, adapt- adaptive response. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I recommend putting on all four bands, um, doing a series of core-based exercises. Um, so those core-based exercises can be push-ups, they can be pull-ups, they can be even squats while you're actually engaging your core or have a weight, uh, you know, a 30-pound weight in your hands. Um, that is what I would say would be most effective for someone in, in kind of an executive position. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I, that I found, and just before this, this podcast, I just did a very quick, uh, two and a half to three minute, um, push up and squat session mm-hmm. just to kind of feel, get a little endorphin rush, um, feel ready and focus for, for this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would recommend for those executives right before a meeting to, to do this, uh, put the bands on, you know, again, the, the goal is not to get a huge amount of fatigue. Don't, it doesn't want to make you, don't want to make you hypotensive or hypoglycemic because it was such a hard workout, but you're just kind of turning everything on and making you a little bit more, um, sharp and, and, uh, able to articulate what you want to in that presentation mm-hmm. or meeting. Mm-hmm. And okay. Now I want to transfer over into some of the more annoying questions that I asked you before, before we actually hit, hit record, uh, yeah. more in terms of if we're going to try and push that, that superhuman limit in terms of, you know, both, uh, cognitive capacity, but also uh, physical capacity, mm-hmm. stacking workouts and using this device. Uh, we've touched on some of this already in terms of the before and after, but mm-hmm. okay, the element of cardiovascular exercise, uh, you did mention that people do use this downhill skiing, but sure. how would you uh, sequence, for instance, a cardiovascular exercise, maybe just for example, like a, a, a longer run 
with a be strong training session? Should it be before or after? Um, and, and maybe you can throw out some variables in terms of things sure. people should, should consider. Yeah. So I think in order to kind of answer that, I, I need to provide a little bit of context. So mm-hmm. most people think of training as like, okay, hard work in results out, but really what is the goal of that exercise session? What is the goal of your training program in general? Is it to build power? Is it to develop strength? Is it to get bigger and develop more hypertrophy? So these are all quite, is it, is it to um, get a little bit better? Is it to increase your VO2 max? Mm-hmm. So to, so each, each component, each phase of training, each focus of the training is going gonna, is gonna to elicit or necessitate a little bit different application of VFR. Mm-hmm. Um, to go to your cardiovascular question, um, what I would do, so there's, there's various goals of different types of, of training sessions. So generally speaking, the longer runs are really to develop the, the structure of the muscle and the tendons in the, in the limbs in order to be able to handle the volume of training that is normally associated with running. Mm-hmm. Um, people tend to think of like of running, uh, line, running long, slow distance as, okay, I'm tapping into fat burning, right? If they keep their heart rate within a certain range, that's their fat burning um, range. Um, and so for that, it's a little bit different. For, for elite runners and, and competitive runners, the reason why they would do long, slow distance is really to develop that uh, muscular structure and, and coinciding with their tendons. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that... Um, they induce metabolic stress, which is really what you're getting at with BFR. You're, you're really enhanced or increasing the intensity of metabolic stress. Mm. Um, that's sort of saved for more interval training based days or, or even, um, uh, you know, fartlicks. So, uh, longer speed intervals, uh, or mm. versus shorter speed intervals. And, um, that's, that's where BFR can kind of augment, um, those adaptations. So I would say if you're going on a long run, do that long run, maybe cut, cut it at about 75%. So if, if you're on a 10 mile run, stop at seven and a half miles, put the bands on for that last two and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to do a couple things. You're going to get all the adaptations that you did from that long run, but then you're also going to induce a little bit more metabolic stress than you otherwise would by putting the bands on. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend, and I've done this, so I, I know I wouldn't recommend putting them on and running 10 miles. Um, partly because uh, you're, you're probably not getting too much more bang for your buck if you're doing that versus just kind of saving it for the last two and a half miles of that 10 mile run. Um, and the other thing is you can actually get pretty sore with that. Um, and the reason for that is it's a, it's a relatively eccentric motion running, right? So Mm -hmm. you're, you're lengthening the muscle as it's contracting and that can create tears more easily. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when you have a pressurized system while you're doing that, those micro tears, it tends to make it a little bit worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, so kind of keep that in mind when you're, when you're doing longer distance. Would that be the same with sprinting? Because it, like you probably, should you wear this with sprinting? I guess is the question. So again, um, kind of that's the other uh, end of the spectrum. And what, what I tell people is I would perform all your explosive movements uh, without the bands at high, as high a velocity as you possibly can. And then if you want, use the bands to get a fatigue signal to augment what you just did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but there's not a, in my mind, there's not a huge benefit to using the bands, uh, while doing maximal sprint training. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, if you're at like 75% or 70% or 60% of your max speed, that's where I think you can actually, um, make your muscles think that you're at maximal speed and mm-hmm. you can do some of those adaptations without incurring a lot of stress and high intensity <laughs> on your actual system. So kind of coming back to the idea of lighter weights, higher reps, um, in the form of, of running, you know, sprinting versus, versus not sprinting. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Just as an aside, I, I have a, a bike back there, which does yeah. take you to maximal levels when it comes to bike sprints. And sure. I did put the B strong bands on, and this was nobody's suggestion, but my own and try to max out on those sprints. And right. wow. The next day was, uh, yeah. was a fun experience. It was just like, wow, I need a walker kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, and again, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it, you always have to come back to what is the goal and focus of your training um, and, and that kind of thing. And, and, and hey, if you want to, if the goal of your training is to feel like a, a bag of sand after, because I know guys who are like that, I just want to yeah. feel something, um, that's a good way to, to do it. And, yeah. and I don't know if I, I want to ask you a little bit about that training session, because mm-hmm. um, did you notice that you, were, you got to fatigue faster or that the fatigue was just more intense? Um. Both in the sense that if you look at it, because the device, which is behind me actually maps out your fatigue. And so you can see like the max point I hit was actually lower than what my typical one or in terms of wattage. Yeah. In terms of wattage. And then the fatigue towards the end of the 22nd sprint was significantly higher than what it typically would be. And so, uh, and I assume that all just has to do with the blood flow restriction, right? And exactly. Yeah. And that's actually, so you bring up a really good point. Your wattage is an assessment of your power, right? Mm-hmm. And you weren't able to get to the same wattage with, than you did without the bands. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I'm getting at when I say, kind of save the bands for after you do your maximal power output, mm-hmm. because you still want your, you want your body to be used to uh, stimulate or um, being able to generate that much power. Um, but you also can use the bands to kind of augment that, whatever process you're, you're doing. Um, uh, and that's why, so, so there's kind of a, a titration process with how you think about how to titrate be strong or BFR into your workouts. Um, and, and so one of the things that we think about with power training is you want to elicit that max power. Um, but you don't want to, you want to minimize that cost associated with it. Yeah. So as soon as that power starts coming down, uh, you want to throw the bands on because you've done, you've done the power work. Now you, you're trying to get the muscle to fatigue and elicit a maximal anabolic response. Mm-hmm. I love the analogy that you've come back to again and again with that catabolic cost and the anabolic response, because it is exactly. an, an asymmetric catabolic cost versus uh, anabolic response. And that's the beautiful way of putting it. Uh, coming back to what, just hit. What, what, so just to elaborate a little bit on that, that's, that's generally how we try to think about um, a training state for a given athlete. Mm-hmm. If, if they're constantly being broken down, broken down, broken down, it's really hard for them to bounce back up. Yeah. Um, and so at, especially at the elite level, that's, as coaches, that's what we try to try to uh, titrate in and balance is that whole mm-hmm. process. And, and BFR allows us to kind of, it's almost like a little cheat for uh, a hack for coaches because it allows us to have that anabolic response without as much cost. Mm-hmm. And that's really the fundamental balance. You know, it's going to be different when you're working with a youth athlete who's still developing versus an athlete at, their, at the top of their game. It's really just a matter of balancing that, those two processes. Uh, I love it. And I could throw it in my luggage, which is just fantastic exactly uh, coming back to just bfr in general so mm-hmm. blood flow restriction has been around for how many years now so the guy uh dr sato who first came up with it uh was experimenting with these uh about 50 years ago and so um, why has it taken so long to become um it's not even mainstream now but yeah. like why is it taking so long to get to this point yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's something I kind of ask myself a lot too. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
first of all, it, it was originally developed in Japan. And honestly, it is quite widespread there. Um, yeah. They're using it a lot of hospitals. Uh, a, a lot of professional athletes are using it. They even have beauty shops where, um, you know, older, older women can go in and, and kind of just talk and, 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 and do lightweight exercise. And they think it, it, it's invigorating and things like that. So it's, it's pretty widespread there. Um, what ended up, ended up happening with uh, BFR moving to the States is there's a little bit of loss in translation. Yeah. Uh, where it first kind of started developing is um, bodybuilders started seeing um, people using katsu in, in preparation for shows. And, you know, a European bodybuilders would kind of go up to them and be like, so what's this all about? And, and some of the Japanese bodybuilders didn't want to give it away. So they like, oh, I, I, I don't understand you. You know, it's uh, like, I can't, I can't converse. Yeah. Um, and so they really wanted to kind of keep it secretive for themselves because they thought it was such a cool biohack. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the European bodybuilders just started wrapping tourniquets around their, their arms um, and doing it that way. So, that, so it's actually in the bodybuilding world, I, I'm sure people are like kind of laughing right now because they're like, oh yeah, we've been doing that, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and so, so it kind of went from that to then started being incorporated into the research as more studies were coming out of Japan. And the things that were available to those researchers were things like blood pressure cuffs, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, wide rigid systems um, that don't allow for that skeletal muscle pump to really push that, push the venous past the venous blockade that we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier. Um, and also years before this, back to the 1930s and 40s, they had um, experiments where they would do uh, post-exercise ischemia, limb, limb ischemia, where they would exercise. They were trying to basically trying to identify um, uh, something called the mechanoin metabolic or exercise pressure reflex, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, through afferent neurons, you get feedback to your central nervous system. Um, they get integrated and you have an increase in sympathetic output to basically optimally deliver blood flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of where it went to. That's kind of where people's minds went to is this occlus- occlusion uh, post-ischemia experiments. Um, and so that's what people started doing. And then uh, it kind of picked up speed when uh, it was used on veterans where they were going up to limb occlusion pressure and backing off. But it's in that process, it kind of, the traditional techniques and protocols kind of got lost in, the, in, in that path. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the original katsu is really getting at um, venous occlusion, not arterial occlusion specifically, mm-hmm. um, in, in order to elicit uh, that fatigue state. Whereas now the literature has kind of gone to, okay, let's use blood pressure cuffs to very accurately assess blood pressure um, at these, at, during you know, different positions in order to restrict arterial flow going into the muscle. Mm-hmm. So there's been a little bit of a like, discrepancy in that, in that whole kind of journey of coming to the United States um, why it's not getting not as much traction. Um, I think it's just a matter of time. I yeah. think people still, um, you, you know, this as much as anybody coaches really like to, uh, depend on, on what coaches in the past have done. And so they, they're very averse to, um, going Makes after sense. new techniques. And, and I would say like, again, the, the kind of the younger generation of coaches is picking up on this. And I think, um, I, certainly the circles that I'm in, um, everybody BFR is kind of exploding in popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just really a matter of time before it really starts picking up into the mainstream. Um, but I think that that kind of story of how it came over gradually, it definitely plays a part in, in why it's not really literally exploding right now. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the Be Strong device itself, when you look at yeah. the, in the innovations that were made around it <clears throat> that prevent the occlusion and mm-hmm. some of the other 
is it specifically the air tube or is it something because you see the bodybuilders that just basically take a bandana or something yeah. and tie it as tight as they possibly can. Uh, the innovations that you guys made on the device in order to just make it that much better. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so I will say the device was really designed with the original Katsu um, protocol in mind. So mm -hmm. really trying to stay away from any arterial occlusion while maintaining or, or while maintaining venous uh, restriction or, or occlusion. Um, when you, when you tie a bandana or, or like a elastic band around your arm, you can have an effective BFR session. The problem is you don't know how that's changing day to day. There's no, there's no pneumatic actual uh, pump that is, that is telling you what your pressure is for that day. You're really going off subjective feeling. Um, and on top of that, there's going to be areas where the band is tighter and looser. Um, it can pinch nerves and, and, and arteries and things like that. And it can be dangerous. I, I, but I will say if you've had experience with this and bodybuilders out there who are doing this, um, while I don't necessarily recommend it, 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 it can be effective. So mm -hmm. I don't want to take that away. Um, but what really makes B-Strong stand out is, uh, is this barrel system. Um, and with Katsu, you actually have the band itself is elastic. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of an elastic material. Whereas uh, when, we, when we don't have any air inflated in the band here, it's, it's non-elastic, yeah. right? As soon as we inflate air, if I can find it, give me one sec. Got one right behind me. So as soon as we inflate the air, these barrels will start to inflate. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a couple things are happening. First of all, think about this on your on your arm. These bands are now kind of pressing into your tissue. Mm -hmm. But because due to fluid dynamics, your, your blood is going to be eventually going to be able to push down on this air in mm -hmm. order to get past it. So a couple things happen. You get that constriction and kind of compression of the tissue, but then all of a sudden this becomes an elastic band. Mm -hmm. And I encourage people who can't really see this um, to, to try this on their own. You actually have elasticity in the band now. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's kind of what separates um, these are bandanas or blood pressure cuffs from, from this design because we're able to have a semi semi-elastic, non-elastic band that provides enough restriction to re restrict the venous side, but stays away from the arterial occlusion. Mm -hmm. Where do you think blood flow restriction training is going in the future? And if you're able to hint on what you guys have going on, sort of the research or development side, I'm sure, sure the listener base would love to hear. Yeah. So um, kind of two parts to that. Um, I think uh, at least in, in the circles that I've, that I've seen here in Austin, some, some of the performance centers, and, and certainly in the PT realm, uh, BFR is, is almost at this point standard procedure. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think, you know, in the next five years, this is going to be uh, a, a, a must-have for every gym um, and every PT clinic out there, mm -hmm. uh, just, just to be able to keep up with other PT clinics and gyms that do have it. Um, I think the real expertise is going to be how to actually implement that because there's a million and one ways to actually do that. Um, so that's going to be kind of the limiting factor, I think. Um, but yeah, so I, 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 I'm very optimistic about the uh, future of BFR, um, whether that's Be Strong or, or other uh, products in general, mm -hmm. um, as a way to really help uh, the population get fitter and stronger. Um, you know, another, another application, this kind of gets into the research that, I, that I'm going to do, but 
Another application is for clinical populations. So mm -hmm. uh, people with type 2 diabetes, um, people who are aging, uh, even people who have musculoskeletal or neurological diseases such as, you know, MS. Uh, this is a great way for them. Normally, they can't really do exercise, period. Mm -hmm. so it's very, very hard for them. So this is a great way for them to be able to get moving and actually maybe start that process of rehabilitation or mm -hmm. prehabilitation. Um, so one of the studies that we did uh, at UT was, and this is uh, unpublished, so I um, can't speak too many details about it, um, but we were prehabbing cancer patients for surgery. Okay. Um, there's, there's a very strong correlation between muscle, lean body mass and rates of, um, uh, or lower rates of mortality post-op. Mm -hmm. for cancer patients. And so our goal was to build up these uh, cancer patients, get them some good lean body mass in order to be able to handle the surgery better. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was, that was one application. They couldn't have done, they couldn't have increased their lean body mass um, really with a normal training session, training program, um, mainly because it would just be so taxing and, you know, they can't lift heavy weights. So it would be with lightweights anyway. So we were thinking of a way to uh, induce a similar response using lightweights they can handle um, in a more efficient and effective way. Mm -hmm. um, some other studies that we're doing, I've mainly looked at the safety aspects of, uh, and really the hemodynamic or, or your blood pressure responses during a BFR session. Mm -hmm. um, and in my study, we were looking at really the difference between wide rigid cuffs and narrow elastic cuffs. For the wide rigid, we used a cuff called a Hokanson cuff, which are pretty uh, uh, normally found in, in lab environments. They're mm -hmm. it's essentially a blood pressure cuff, mm -hmm. um, rapid inflation, so you can have really precise control. And then we use B-Strong as kind of a narrow elastic um, component um, to compare it against. And um, given the same walking, actually the, the wide rigid cuff was actually at 160 millimeters of mercury. The B-Strong bands were pumped up to 300 millimeters of mercury. Um, even so, with that large difference, uh, we saw major increases in blood pressure when using the wide rigid cuffs. And, you know, while that may not seem like a huge finding, pretty, pretty obvious, um, it does have implications for use of BFR in clinical populations yeah. or in unsupervised settings, right? Mm -hmm. So again, coming back to what I said earlier, I think that um, wide rigid blood flow restriction, you know, occlusion training, that kind of stuff can be effective. We're, we're still getting at the, the, the idea of tricking the body into thinking it's doing high intensity, high load work. Um, but it needs to be monitored very care carefully in order to make sure you're not going to cause any um, adverse yeah. um, reactions. So if you're a person who's already predisposed to high blood pressure sitting at home uh, right. by themselves, it's probably not the best idea to exactly. <clears throat> tie off your However, Exactly. However, BFR and particularly B-Strong and, and even in COPSI, I would say, um, great way to, uh, to try to treat hypertension yeah. um, and exercise in general because, uh, you know, and a lot of people will say, well, isn't it dangerous to increase your blood pressure when you're already hypertensive? Well, yes, if, that, if that's sustained for 24 hours, but little bouts of increased blood pressure actually help you lower your blood pressure and desensitize your baroreceptor uh, to have you have a little bit lower blood pressure in general. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, that's something to kind of clear the air a little bit with when it comes to exercise. Yes, the actual uh, event of exercise is very stressful in the body. But really, it's that stress that then leads to adapting to be more healthy um, for the other 18 hours in the day. Brilliant. Stun, this has been an absolute pleasure. And damn, awesome. my head hurts. Education. Uh, it's, been, <laughs> it's, it's great. I want to transition now into a final few questions. Okay. Uh, 
what is your top trick for enhancing focus? Well, I think that's very relevant to what we're discussing today. Um, I wonder because you did something beforehand. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, um, whenever I'm feeling a little bit sluggish, um, like if I'm just feeling like my adrenals are kind of like loaded and just feeling maybe inflamed, I'll I'll put the bands on and just do a very short uh, two and a half minute kind of flush. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it'll be, you know, one exercise, again, not looking for fatigue necessarily, but just kind of getting my body turned on. Mm-hmm. That helps. Um, I've also, I'm, I'm also, uh, I, I practice meditation quite, mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, and actually I've experimented with having the bands on and inflating and deflating while I'm meditating. Um, and that actually I've noticed, especially comparing that with some breath work, um, is actually a really nice um, way to focus and kind of, kind of kick those thoughts that you're trying to get out of your head or, you know, as they say with meditation, you kind of let those thoughts, those anxious thoughts or whatever thoughts you're having kind of float away. So walk, um, walk me through this because you've just, yeah. you've seated two of my favorite things, right? Like meditation, uh, yeah. three of my favorite things, breath work and blood flow restriction. Yeah. How are you, are you, you're manually inflating and deflating during this meditation session? Yes, exactly. Okay. So what I, what I do, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have uh, more than one pump. <laughs> so so I, ha- I have two pumps in my hand and um, I'll usually just start with, uh, with my arms. I'll, I'll have all four bands on, but I'll start with my arms. I'll inflate, um, again, kind of uh, be kind of in a meditative state working mm-hmm. on box breathing. Um, so whether it's two, two, two or, or four, four, um, it kind of just depends on, on how I'm feeling that day. Uh, but I'm working on that and working on diaphragmatic breathing, breathing through the lower end of my stomach or my abdomen, I should say, um, inflating, staying inflated for about 30 seconds, releasing the pressure for about five to 10 seconds, inflating for about 30, and kind of using that as a way to induce that meditative yeah. um, kind of, kind of uh, response or, or state, meditative state, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, people t- tend to think of like, okay, focus on your breath, count in, count out. Yeah. Um, this way, I can kind of focus on my blood flow itself and, and really narrow my focus into that. And then I, I notice if I do that for about 10 minutes um, after, I just feel very clairvoyant and, and ready to, to tackle the day. Wow. Um, to kind of finish that protocol, uh, after I do about five inflation deflation sessions on my arms, I'll move it down to my legs and do the same with my legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then I'll deflate everything, take the bands off and, and sit there for another you know, two to three minutes. Mm-hmm. The benefits of being a part of the company, right? You can have the extra. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try and figure out how to run it with, with one pump, but uh, what's, yeah, it, what excites you most about the health world right now? Yeah, good question. Well, I think what excites me the most, especially being on the kind of the research part of things is realizing how much we don't know. Um, yeah. I, I think that's a, you know, maybe an antiquated statement of uh, the more that you dive into something on a given topic, the more you realize that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very true when it comes to physiology and, and health. Um, so I just, you know, the prospect of learning, uh, so much more about the body and, um, how much I've learned in this short time, just in terms of how important, for example, blood flow is to your whole system, not just your cardiovascular system, but to your, um, your ability to think your cognitive function, um, your, your metabolism, the way that you actually, um, degrade and break down nutrients, uh, absorb nutrients. It's all so connected. Um, and so I would say like the most, uh, that's the kind of the coolest, you know, nerdiest aspect of physiology for me is just how integrated the system is. Um, and, and I think that's studying that integration is going to be where the health, uh, health department, health institutions kind of end up going. Book, which has most significantly impacted your life. 
That's a good question. Um, so I, I recently read um, 12 Rules, Rules for Life uh, by Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I've listened to the audiobook as well. I was, I was recently in a car ride and I kind of listened to that the whole way down and uh, had some really, really good stuff in there. And almost, almost to a point where all these things I've kind of already known, but he does a really good job of articulating them in a, in a palatable way and um, really helps you. Uh, it's kind of, people call it a self-help book, but I also like to think about it as almost like a uh, life hypothesis book or mm-hmm. life uh, like goal kind of book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good way to look at life and, and kind of take responsibility for your actions and, um, and take reins of your own life rather than kind of blaming other people or kind of having this victim mindset and things like that. So that's definitely kind of informed a lot of my, um, you know, uh, ideals and, and, and things like that. Where can people find out more about you and be strong? Yeah. So, um, I'm a little bit hard to find on the internet, but, uh, you can, you can look at, uh, yeah, I'm hiding. No, not, not intentionally. Um, but, uh, they can, they can find out more information. Um, if they look up uh, UT, um, kinesiology department, uh, I'm, I'm in there. I, I'm right now I'm in the uh, clinical exercise physiology laboratory, mm-hmm. um, at UT. Um, I was in the cardiovascular aging research lab. Um, so that's kind of where my main focus is. Um, but I also, I, uh, I'm working with a company called reach outcomes right now. So, uh, it's a performance center. We're looking to kind of integrate all the aspects of performance. So anything from recovery to sleep, nutrition, uh, strength, strength, conditioning, uh, physical therapy, all that under one umbrella. Um, that's the, if they want to kind of look, look me up on there. Um, anybody in the Austin area, uh, if you're looking to enhance your performance or have a little bit more direction, that's another good place to kind of find out more information about me. Um, in terms of be strong, um, I'd kind of, uh, direct people to our website, be strong.training.com. Uh, we can find out there's tons of information that we've, that we've posted on there. Um, whether it's from the mechanism to how you can use this in your own applications to how to put the bands on as simple as kind of understanding what the bands are, all are, are all about. Um, you can find a lot of information there. Awesome. Sten, thank you so much for joining. This has been an amazing education and I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been an honor. Thanks for having me on Boomer. I hope we can do something in the future. Absolutely. To all the superhumans listening out there, have an epic day. And when you're watching this, subscribe to the YouTube channel because you're going to watch videos like this all the time. Thank you, Stan. Appreciate it. You know, I love when you find a shortcut to something. And blood flow restriction training with the Be Strong device has been a shortcut to an anabolic response for me and for many people. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you're looking for really any of the information discussed in this episode, head on over to decodingsuperhuman.com slash Sten. And please share it on your various social media channels. Tag Decoding Superhuman and let me know what you think of the episode. And if it grabbed you in a good way, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review because all of those really, really help. Superhumans, have an absolutely epic day and choose health.